We have come together tonight for the explicit purpose of freely glorifying our God. We do that in the way that we sing, and this is a congregation that enjoys singing. That helps a lot. It's a congregation that's good at singing, which also is encouraging. And we are here tonight also to pray and to study together from God's Word. And I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, where we are going to spend the majority of our time together this evening, beginning in about verse 25 of the text. Thank you so much for being here. As was announced earlier today, we have visitors, and we are very thankful for your choice to be with us and to be encouraging to us. And please do not underestimate how important you are, whether you are a first-time visitor or you've been a member here for more years than maybe some of us that have been alive. We're glad that you're here, and we're glad to have the opportunity to study together. Last Sunday morning, our brother David preached a sermon revolving around the concept of how sin impacts our God. It affects God. It hurts God when we sin. We've talked about not only how it impacts us, but he really focused in on the concept of how it impacts the Creator anytime we choose to miss the mark, because it is a choice that we make to sin, a conscientious choice or decision that we make to disobey our God. And that makes God upset. It provides God an opportunity to be sorrowful. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, there is a passage that I want us to kind of put a laser on for a moment tonight, where it talks about God's sorrow and ways, I believe, that the Holy Spirit commends us in helping us to no longer grieve the Holy Spirit and grieve our God. Read with me, if you would, in chapter 4, verse 25. And we could read through the end of the chapter, but we're only going to read through verse 30 because verses 31 through 32 are rich with information that can be a sermon in and of itself. Therefore, given the fact that we have put on the new man, verse 24, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That verse 30 is where we're getting the title or the concept of the sermon tonight. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That being said, I think we need to acknowledge first of all that we have it in our capacity to make God happy to cause him to be glorified and to cause him to be pleased, or we also have it in our ability to cause our God to be sorrowful, to be downcast because of the choices that we have made. And usually, at least it seems to me, we often think about God being sorrowful because of non-Christians' failure to comply with God's word. And I'm not about to suggest that that's inappropriate. 
I think that God is very upset when someone in the world knows the truth and refuses to obey that. That hurts God because they continue in their sinful ways. But if you would remember that the New Testament is written to Christians. Very little in the New Testament is addressed to people who are not churchgoers or individuals who are representative of God as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And Paul here is warning Christians about the possibility of grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And I thought about that word grieving, and I thought, I think I know what that means. So I went and looked up what the definition was, both in a normal Webster's dictionary as well as a good Bible dictionary. And sure enough, it confirmed that even a four- or five-year-old can understand the concept of grieving God. It literally means to make him sad. We can make God sad. And again, a a four-year-old, probably a three-year-old, can understand that concept, what it means to make someone sad. We don't like making other people sad. We don't like when people make us sad. And it hurts our feelings, and it makes us feel down and depressed and, and, and distressed. And Paul here says, guys, to the church at Ephesus in the last half of his letter, which is very practical in nature. Those of you that are familiar with the book of Ephesians know that we typically kind of split it down the middle. The first three chapters kind of belong together. The the last three chapters belong together. And there's some truth to that. I'm not sure that Paul understood that he was writing part one and part two or chapters one, two, three, four, five, and six. But in this second half of the letter, he says, let's be very practical practical about the ways that we can go about preventing God from being sad. And I'm, I'm convinced that we don't need to have a sermon tonight on why it's important not to make God sad. If nothing else, last Sunday morning, David did an excellent job of pointing out how God is impacted by our sin. If God is impacted by our sin, and if we have the capacity to hurt him, should we not prevent ourselves from doing so? And and we all agree and say, yes, we want to prevent God's sorrow. So let me share with you four things that are outlined here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 29, that will help us to please God and to prevent his sorrow. Number one is to have communication that is truthful communication that is truthful. God hates, and I underline that word, I should have put it in bold capital letters, but God hates untruthful communication. We won't take the time to go back and reread Zechariah chapter 8, but verses 16 and 17 are powerful. Verse 16 on two occasions uses the word truth, Verse 17 uses the word false. So three different times the concept of truth versus fiction is respected by the prophet Zechariah. And he says, this also the Lord hates. He hates falsehoods. God hates lying. We understand that. And that's why we try to always tell the truth. We try to always be honest with each other and honest with the world. Notice what is said there in verse 25. He says, putting away lying or putting away dishonesty. Why is dishonesty to be put away? Have you ever thought about why God wants us to be honest? And and I know there's lots of reasons why that is the case, because that's the way that we're supposed to treat each other. Uh, The golden rule would, would demand that we tell the truth because we want someone else to tell the truth to us. 
But I thought about that. I thought that one of the reasons why God wants us to be honest is because he wants us to be like him. There is no lie in God. There is no deceit in God. There is no deception in God. There is no sense of God trying to pull the wool over our eyes and say, I don't want you to acknowledge. I've long said that there's no fine print with the contract with Jesus Christ. It's large print. And it's easy to see what we are getting into. And Luke chapter 14, among other places, tells us that we have to count the cost. And Jesus says, understand what you're getting into. I'm not trying to be deceptive. I don't want to trick you into becoming a Christian. And the next thing you know, you're stuck with it. That's not the way Jesus operates. He wants us to voluntarily say, I'm willing to be your slave, Romans chapter 6. I'm willing to be your servant from here on going forward. If lying is left out or is visible, we will see it and be attracted to it. And I think that's why he says in verse 25, put it away. If you've got something that tempts you, whether it be a food, whether that be an activity, whether that be some sort of person, put that thing away. Get rid of it. Don't look at it and don't keep it in the line of sight. And the idea here is to put away the things that we are no longer to be involved in. The general governing rule that Paul suggests here is that we are members of one another. And just as the foot does not lie to the hand, as the eye does not lie to the ear, the body is all one. And we communicate with each other as taught in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, as taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and as hinted at here where he says, we are members of one another. Because we are members of one another, it means that we are to have truthful communication with one another. The body, the physical body, is honest with itself, so must the spiritual body. Christians need to openly and honestly communicate about our pains, our pains to each other and our pains to God. The things that we are concerned about, we need to address with our God in heaven. He says, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor as he goes back and references Zechariah 8 verse 16. That being said, we need to acknowledge that there is no pain nor concern that is too small for God. There's not, a, there's not a situation in your life where you are in pain physically, emotionally, financially, or spiritually where God says, you're coming to me with something that is too menial, too unimportant. Now, we as humans sometimes look at it that way. You come to me with your problem, and I say, wait a minute, that doesn't compare to my problem. It's kind of like surgery is always minor until it's yours, then it's major. <laughs> and so the idea being that when you come to me with your problem, it's a major problem for you. Therefore, it's a major problem for me, and I'm going to pray earnestly on your behalf. And that's why it not only is that the case when it goes to our God in prayer, it shouldn't be too small for each other. So that being said, on a very practical matter, be very cautious. Uh, and you are a very good group about doing this. But I, I've seen people over 20 or 30 years who sometimes lose sight of this, that when someone comes to you with their issue, and you know that in the grand scheme of things, their issue may not be as serious as another person's issue, 
Don't downplay their issue in the sense that it's unimportant because they believe it is important. Their physical pain, their financial strain, their emotional problem is important to them. And for you to say, well, so-and-so has a bigger problem or I've got a bigger problem is probably not going to be the most advantageous in helping them out. Sometimes we do have to wake up one another and say, keep things in perspective and realize that things could be worse. But we have to balance those things together. We as Christians, based on this passage here in Ephesians chapter 4, need to openly and honestly communicate our concerns. And that means the key is uh, how we get along and how we work together. More on that in just a moment or two. But I think the first thing that we have to understand is we are a truthful people who share with each other our genuine concerns and we speak the truth with our neighbor. That includes speaking hard truths where we have to share with one another, you may be wrong here, let's consider this. We do so with speech seasoned with grace, Colossians 4 verses 5 through 6, but we do so with the ultimate goal of winning the person back if they are in sin, James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20. That brings us then to a second thing, and that is one of the most familiar aspects of this particular passage is verse 26 and verse 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Two things, it seems to me, are apparent regarding our anger. Number one is it's possible for a person to be angry and not sin. In fact, I've argued before in pulpits like this and in conversations with individuals who are sometimes concerned about anger that if you don't get angry from time to time, that might be sinful. If you don't get angry with sin in the lives of those that you care about and certainly in your own life, you don't get angry with yourself and say, shame on you for acting that way, for making that choice, for going to that place, for thinking that thing, for doing that. If we don't get angry with ourselves and upset with ourselves, then we are unlike the great men and women of old who realized the sin in their lives and were upset with it as well. And the second thing that I think we need to acknowledge about regarding anger is that simply because a person is a Christian doesn't make him immune from the dangers of anger. We don't go into the waters of baptism with anger problems and come out of the the waters of baptism, and we've been healed. No, I never get angry again. No, that's not the case. And, and the best of the best sometimes struggle with this particular thing. Christians need to address what it is that makes us angry sometimes with one another. And I would argue that we actually need a checklist when dealing with anger towards another Christian. We understand that the relationship that we have with those who are fellow saints is a different relationship than we have with those in the world. We have fellowship with one another that we don't have fellowship with people in the world. We have a responsibility to one another spiritually that we don't have to those in the world. doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to teach them and to encourage them. But the point that I'm making is that we have a unique responsibility and fellowship with one another. So how do we go about managing our anger? Well... Let's look at some passages and create what I would call the anger checklist, which has two questions. Number one, am I angry because of someone's sinful act? 
And there are going to be times in your life where you are going to be angry because of someone's sinful choice. And again, I would argue, good for you. Be angry with that. Be angry with your own uh, personal sin and be angry when someone else sins. Uh, I remember uh, probably 20 years ago, a, a friend of mine who was not a Christian but was a fellow uh, alumnus of where I graduated from did something and broke the law and ended up going to jail for a period of time and lost a job and had some serious consequences. And I, I found myself getting angry because he was dragging the name of my college through the mud. And, you know, we had a good reputation of trying to be upstanding men and, um, and, and being educated to make good choices. And here he made this very poor choice. So I was angry with his choice for doing that. And when someone, a brother or sister, is in sin, we get angry over that. If we are angry because of someone's sin, what do we do about it? We act. We have to address it. And a failure to address that is consequences that may include us being in sin. First Corinthians chapter 5, the first five verses that Brother Bruce took us through about six or eight months ago, did an excellent job of talking about how you have a man who is involved in sin in those first five verses, and rather than addressing it and saying, this ought not be so... The brethren at Corinth said, everything is great, hunky-dory, it's okay that you are involved in sin, and in fact profited on the idea of saying, look, we are accepting of all individuals. But James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, as I referenced just a few moments ago, are very clear in telling us that we are to go out and to rescue someone who is in sin and bring them back to the fold of safety, back to God. So sometimes we get angry because of someone's sinful act. But sometimes we get angry or, at the very least, we get frustrated with someone's non-sinful act. Maybe their behavior isn't sinful, but it's not what we want. Maybe their choice isn't sinful, but it's not our preference. More on that two weeks from this morning, Lord willing. Let me suggest one question, and that is, can you live with it? There are things that are going to drive you crazy about other people. <laughs> and if you've lived more than a day, you know that that's the case. There are things about even your friends that sometimes make you a little bit crazy. That drive you to the point you say, I just don't understand why, why do you keep your house that way? Or why do you not keep your house that way? Why do you dress that way? I'm not talking about sinful dress. I'm just talking about personal choices and things that, that, that don't matter to God or don't matter in terms of respect or modesty. Why do you talk that way? Again, I'm not talking about speaking ill, but the fact of the matter is, is sometimes there are things that are going to make us upset with one another that don't rise to the occasion of being sinful. If that's the case, I must work for peace. Pursue peace, and as much as possible, be at peace with all men, Paul would write in Romans chapter 12 and other places. However, there are times where in your life as a Christian, where you have a disagreement with someone, and it's not a matter of it being sinful, it doesn't rise to the matter of saying, brother, you have sinned, and you go to Matthew chapter uh, 18 and passages like that. But the fact is, is you still, it just, you can't get past it. If not, then you need to address it. 
Colossians chapter 4 tells us that we address it with a spirit of calmness and spiritual maturity. Why is this so important? Why is dealing with anger or frustration so very important? Because verse 27 says, if you do not deal with it before the sun goes down, the idea being sooner than later, then you are going to give place or a foothold to the devil. And so what ends up happening when you have a qualm with someone that is not a matter of sinful, but it just drives you crazy and you can't get past it and you'd like for that person to change and maybe that would help you in your faith. Maybe it would help you in your walk. If left unchecked, bitterness is going to settle and it's a place for the devil to realize an opportunity to do his bidding. The New King James says, you will give place to the devil. I have a footnote in my Bible that says an opportunity to the devil. Some of you have the phrase, give a foothold to the devil. And if you've ever been climbing on a wall or climbing on a boulder, a foothold is what gives you security to make your next step. We do not want to give the devil an opportunity to make his next step in our direction. And so we need to be careful about our anger. Number three, Paul here in Ephesians chapter four says, if you want to prevent the sorrow of God, be involved in purposeful work. Paul's command to the Ephesians needs to be seen in light of some of the first century culture or first century habits. Historians tell us that especially in this part of the world of Asia Minor and the, the, the world as it was growing, that theft was actually rationalized through a Robin Hood-like mentality. And that there were people at Ephesus who may have been familiar with this mindset. Because in verse 28, he says, let him who stole steal no longer. Apparently, there were people in Ephesus and apparently either members of the church or friends of the members of the church or family of the members of the church who were involved in theft and thinking it was okay. Because after all, I'm poor and I need to steal from those who are rich or have someone steal for me to provide for me. But the fact is, is he says, that's not the case at all. Theft is rationalized, but we need to understand there's a right and a wrong way to go about helping those who are uh, in need. Some would say, well, wait a minute now. Didn't Jesus help the poor? And of course he did. He was constantly aware of those who were impoverished. In fact, he seems to kind of gravitate towards those who are either poor physically, financially, or those certainly who are poor spiritually, more importantly. But he never did so through dishonest action and always conducted himself with the utmost integrity. The fact is, is that God, according to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, created work to be an integral part of who we are and what we are. And I always point this out because Genesis 2 and 3 do not teach that work is a result or a consequence of sin. But rather work was something that was put into the plan in Genesis chapter 2 prior to Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the world. Now hard labor by the sweat of one's brow 
labor that involves a lot of taxation, I'm not talking about physical taxation, but more emotional or physical taxation, that may very well be the result of sin based on Genesis chapter 3, the last 8 to 10 verses. But we need to understand that because work is actually a good thing and God wants us to be industrious and wants us to be helpful in taking care of not only ourselves, but also of others. Notice that here he says, let him who stole, steal no longer, but let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. So working is not just important for helping ourselves and our own families, but it's important to help others. And that's not just true during this time of year. That's true throughout the year. And let me suggest that we started with communication being truthful. We end with communication being worthwhile. Because there's a difference between worthwhile communication and putrid communication. In fact, we are to avoid here corrupt or putrid communication. That word putrid is a word that sounds ugly because it is ugly. But that's literally what the word means here in chapter 4 and verse 29 where he says, Let no corrupt word or corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. It is interesting to know that if you kind of really focus in on verse 29, which I've mentioned before is one of my favorite verses in the book of Ephesians, not because I've mastered it, but because it's so practical in nature and that if we apply it in every aspect of our lives, it seems to help every aspect of our lives, that we are able to do this. When he says, don't let it proceed out of your mouth, that tells me that I have the ability to control what I say. That's amazing. I, and only I, get to control what I say. And you have the ability to control your tongue as well. It goes back to the tongue of fire that we talked about about a month ago in James chapter 3. In fact, James chapter 1 seems to suggest that we use our filters before saying what enters our minds. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's somewhat comical, but at the same time, very sad. If we were to say everything that crossed our mind in the course of a 24-hour day, we would hurt a lot of people, we would embarrass ourselves drastically, and we would do a lot of harm in that process. Just because something crosses your mind, you may say, wait, I don't want to think that way. And, and you do want to change the way that you think. Matthew chapter 5 is all about changing the way that you think, not just the way that you talk or you act. But we need to understand that just because something crosses my mind doesn't mean that I have to say it. I can use a filter to say it more appropriately, or sometimes if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's the sign that would hang in my grade school cafeteria. And we would have to look at that while we ate every day, which really reduced the things that we would have to tattle on one another as a result. Worthless communication is communication that is not good for the necessary edification so that it may impart grace to the hearers. And let me suggest that worthless communication corrupts three groups of people. Number one, it corrupts the speaker. James chapter 3 talks about that where it says these things ought not be so that the words that are profitable and that build up others 
come from the same mouth of someone who tears down someone. So worthless communication corrupts the speaker. Number two, worthless communication corrupts the intended, the person. And I've said this before in different sermons on anger or on the way that we use our words or worthwhile communication, that words hurt. You know, my elementary school, uh, some of you are probably wondering, how did you make it through elementary school with all these scarring experiences? But riding the bus to elementary school, Mrs. Pettigo would say, well, we were actually not sure if when she got home she turned into a witch and rode a broomstick. She scared us. But she would say, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt. I saw Mrs. Pettigo about 10 years ago, and I didn't have the guts to go up to her. I was afraid still. (laughs) But I wanted to say, you know what? You're wrong. Because sticks and stones may break bones, but words sometimes leave scars that last a whole lot longer. And sometimes being punched in the jaw hurts less than what someone says about you or to you. And there are people who are here tonight who 20 years ago, something was said to you that hurt you. 30 years ago, something was said about you that scarred you. And you probably say, I really wish the person would have just punched me in the face because that would have hurt less and I would have gotten over that and I wouldn't remember that pain but I remember what someone says because words hurt and let me suggest thirdly that worthless communication it hurts or it corrupts the outsiders because our reputations matter so much worthwhile communication is not that we have to be silent now there are times where we need to be silent There are times where we just need to be quiet and allow others to do the talking. In fact, James says that we are to be swift to hear and we are to be slow to speak. But we should speak so as to edify or impart grace to the hearers. To edify literally means to build up. It's the idea of an edifice or an edifice, to build up, to make a building. This must be true even with corrective talk. So that even when we are trying to correct someone, we do everything we can to build them up. You know, good coaches, good managers, good bosses uh, are good at what they do in part because when they have to deliver sometimes a difficult message, they do so with a sense of, you're doing really well here, now here's an opportunity for improvement. How would you like to have a boss who only tells you all the things that you do wrong? Some of you have bosses like that, and I understand that makes your life very difficult. But you would like to have someone who recognizes the value that you bring to the firm, to the company, to the, to the school, in addition to the things that you can do to improve and to do better. And I love where it says that it may impart grace to the hearers in verse 29. We should speak to impart grace. The King James Version says that we are to be ministers of grace. And to be a minister is not to be someone who stands in a pulpit, but to be a minister is to be a servant. And that's what we all are. And we are to be ministers of that grace. And it reminds me of the richest man who ever lived. It's the title of a little book. I'll be glad to let you read it if you like. It's, 
It's not a religious book. It's not written by, from a religious perspective, and it's not even written by a, a religious person necessarily. But it's all about Marty. And Marty, if you're familiar with The Richest Man on Earth, it's a very short book, was a greeter at Walmart. And he was a greeter for some 20 years at Walmart. And Marty became famous in his little community in the Dakotas because everybody knew Marty. When you walk into Walmart, welcome to Walmart, he would say. And he'd have a conversation with you. And sometimes people would back up the line. And rather than busily going about getting their groceries or buying their staples or whatever they need to get, they were there more so to talk to Marty, saying, look at my new granddaughter, look at my new grandson. How are things going for you, Marty? Because Marty was all about imparting grace. He was all about building others up. He wasn't doing it in a spiritual way, but he was doing so in a very physical and an emotional way. And so in many ways, we need to be like Marty as well, but Marty to a degree of spiritual wellness wherein others are constantly being built up by us. Sometimes you run into Christians who may say, you know what, I just don't know that I have very many talents to offer the local church. I I can show up and I'll study my Bible and I'll pray and I'll, I'll give and I'll do the things that I'm supposed to do, but I just, I don't know what I can do. If you can do nothing else, impart grace and be a Marty and be a minister of grace to others in the way that you write notes, in the way that you send texts, in the way that you make phone calls, in the way that you just, in the olden days, shake hands. These days, you smize, right? You you use your eyes to smile. I can see some of you smiling right now, even though I can't see any mouths. But the fact of the matter is, is we can impart grace to others. Consider the effects that this would have on every aspect of life. Can you imagine what it would be like to drive in Rutherford County if everybody imparted grace to one another? And to those of you who may be watching who aren't familiar with Murfreesboro and you think it's, it's, a, it's a one-stop light town, uh, it's not anymore. It's a busy place. And there are a lot of people going a lot of different directions. And a lot of people are frustrated, especially this time of year. You've got so many different things to do, so many places to see, so many things to accomplish. Take a deep breath and impart grace to the world and minister grace to others. Well, I conclude with bad news and I conclude with good news. And the bad news simply is this, that a failure to consider these four things will bring sadness and grief to God it'll cause our God to be sad. And again, going back to where we began, a three-year-old understands the concept of what it means to make God sad. We do not want to make God sad. We want to make him happy. We want to delight him. The great news is attention to these four things, truthful communication, management of our anger, purposeful work, and worthwhile communication will help us to bring great joy to God, and we each get to make that choice. You get to make that choice tonight. How powerful you are. Granted, God is all-powerful, but you have a lot of ability in your life, in the way that you choose to move forward. The fact is, is God is calling yet. 
Shall I not hear? Shall I not answer? Shall I not respond to my Lord and my Savior? And if you're here and not a Christian, then we want you to become a Christian so that you can begin working on these things with us and helping us. Because these are things that we are all striving to improve on. None of us have mastered truthful communication. None of us have mastered the management of our anger or this checklist of anger or worthwhile communication. These are things that we're working on on a daily basis. And we would invite you to, to join with us to be baptized, to have your sins washed away as is taught in 1 Peter 3, Acts 2, and Mark 16. If as a child of God, you've made the decision to become uh, one of those Christians, one of those saints, and God has added you to the church, and you are not living correctly, and you need to make some sort of correction, we'd be happy to pray with you. Maybe you struggle with anger or with communication. We'd be happy to help you. If we can in any way, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.